Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan and we have another great episode for you. In a while we'll be hearing from the Smashing Times Theatre Company about their excellent project, Women in an Equal Europe. But first, we're going a bit closer to home. This week, Irish Times journalist Rachel Flaherty did what many people are understandably wary of doing. She opened up about her unhealthy relationship with food and her challenge to become fitter and healthier. This was not about vanity. She made a decision to do something about it when she was five stone overweight and struggling to climb the stairs. As she wrote in this newspaper, this scenario had not happened overnight. Looking back, she wrote, my relationship with food first became warped some years ago when I went on my first, quote, proper diet. It changed her mindset into categorising food as good food and bad food. She was a size 12, which she thought was terrible at the time. She wrote, I wanted to lose weight as quickly as possible to reach what I considered would be perfect for me, a size 10 or 8. Well, she's come a long way. She lost three stone and is delighted with herself as she attempts to get even healthier. Our multitasking producer, Roisin Ingle, began by asking Rachel Flaherty to look back to the very first time she remembers going on a diet. I was around size 12 and I've been, I, it was in the back of my mind that I thought size 10 would be a perfect size or size 8 would be even better. And friends of mine were that size and I envied them a bit and I wanted a flat stomach and I wanted better arms, more toned arms. So I decided, um, I think I did have an event coming up actually, but I decided within six weeks I wanted to do this. Uh, so th- this was the first time I've ever really went on a diet. So I went searching anyway for diets and basically I cut out everything. I kind of categorized food into good and bad. So, you know, green veg and the lean meats and all that became good food. And I would have eaten them anyway. I had no problem with them. Um, but then all carbs nearly became bad food and like chocolate, bread, sweets, bread. I love bread. <laughs> <laughs> so cutting out bread, I was like, oh, and butter. And uh, so I classified all that as bad food, I cut out all sugary drinks, which I know aren't good for you anyway. But um, but I wouldn't have had many anyway. But when I told myself I couldn't have them, um, all of a sudden they became all these types of foods that I almost put on a holy grail of, oh, I'll have them someday in the future that I'm not allowed to have anymore. And I did go down to a size 8, 10 in around five weeks. And it was a great feeling at first, you know, that you set your mind on something and then you achieve it. Um, but then it was miserable. I didn't go out. I didn't socialize because I was afraid to eat out at dinner. I was like, oh, no, that's going to pile on the weight. And then when so I, I, I gave up on it. And then when I, all the foods that I banned for myself suddenly became these you know, food that I wanted more than anything, even though I didn't necessarily like the taste of them, which sounds weird. Um, So there was a chunk of weight that came piling on, but then it kind of settled. But I still, my thinking was warped, I think, from from then. And would you say then for the next, you know, 10 years or whatever, that you had that roller roller coaster thing of up and down and, you know, losing weight, putting on weight? I, because I had that... 
there was that great feeling of when I, I went really strict, it was strict with food, even how I refer to it, I know it was wrong. But um, because that feeling was so good at the time and I, I, but I felt so good at the time when I went down way so fast that when I was feeling, you know, my body was, was um, bigger than what I wanted to be. I reverted back into that thinking, well, if I eat, uh, like, quote-unquote, clean, or if I stay away from carbs or eat no bread or, you know, that that'll work. And it does work initially, but it's 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 not something I could sustain anyway. Mm. You know? And you started your article by talking about, you know, the feelings of shame and guilt and remorse for, as you describe, overeating. Um, can you take tell us about the kind of that sort of a time when you'd be at home and you'd be doing that and how you felt. Yeah. So the, we- the weird thing happened on that first side as well that once I got over the initial type of euphoria of losing weight, I saw nothing but flaws again. I still thought my stomach stuck out too much and my legs should be thinner and my thighs should be thinner. You know, so it just put me in a, a very kind of negative mindset. And even though I was outwardly happy, my inner voice became very kind of nastier to myself I suppose more judgmental um, and then the overeating thing it didn't it didn't happen straight away it kind of happened bit by bit so say after work you know I'd have dinner and then I'd have maybe a bar of chocolate and then that increased I'd have maybe a bar before dinner and then a bar after and then it just took I would wake up in the morning more tired because I'd eaten too much close to bed and then that would kind of the cycle would continue and it would just it just grew slowly now like you month after month it kind of got a bit worse and a bit worse but then I would try something I'd go on a fad diet I feel all good again and kind of would keep continuing that way mm. and you mentioned that it was kind of a, a, a one day when you were climbing the stairs that you started to feel like breath out of breath yeah. And that gave you a bit of a fright in a way. Yeah. So that was, uh, it was actually around this time last year. And I would have been at my biggest weight. And I'd, I'd, uh, the last stone I'd really felt kind of really changed me physically about just simple things like bending down to pick something up. I just felt, I just felt wrong. You know, I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable in my own body. So I was just, uh, I was running up the stairs that I ran up. Well, actually, I wasn't running, probably walking. (laughs) (laughs) That I'd gone up loads of times, but I hadn't gone up the stairs in probably around three months. Um, And I just remember I went to do my normal kind of, you know, when you're going up the stairs, you lean forward. And after a few steps, I just I just was shocked at that. I had to stop and kind of grab my breath. And I thought, "Mm, do I have a cold or am I sick? And then I was like, no, this is this is what you're doing to your body, that you can't take a proper deep breath going up, you know, a few flights of stairs. So it, it wasn't something I thought, I kind of ignored the health aspect. I, I thought about how I looked all the time, um, you know, and I compar- compartmentalized it. I didn't go around think like it was there in my mind, but, it, you know, I was still living life and doing what I needed to. But I was always conscious about how I looked. But the health part then, I started realizing other parts of my health that were suffering so yeah it really got me thinking and the other thing is that you're you decided to kind of have a look at how you were talking about yourself to yourself so that the private uh, negative self-talk that you were doing yeah. and and you when you looked at that you were surprised at how negative you were being about yourself yeah I I was shocked because um I decided I was thinking about it I didn't 
like jump into action straight away. I was thinking about it for a few weeks and then I decided to I'd keep a journal and I'd write down what I was eating and I'd write down how I felt after it. And I wasn't going to change anything from what I was doing. I was going to keep keep doing it. It was actually kind of weird. It was a strange relief of allowing myself to just go ahead and with all the bad habits I had and and, you know, write them down. Um, so I put it, <laughs> I wrote it somewhere that I know no one will ever see and no one will. But um, <laughs> where is that? <laughs> I'm not telling you, I think then you might see it. Um, but basically, I, you know, I wrote it after eating and, uh, you know, when all the guilt and felt ashamed of why I was doing this when I know I shouldn't and it makes no sense. And uh, then a couple of weeks later, when I read it back, I just was shocked at how I was speaking about myself. You know, I would never speak to another human being the way I was speaking to myself. So, I don't know, it kind of shocked me into action going, you know, I can't continue like this. It's not right to be thinking, you know, I know we all have a people can be harsh on themselves. But this this was just I was being cruel to myself. You know, nothing good was going to ever come out of me speaking this way to myself. There's a woman who we're going to have on the podcast um, in the next couple of weeks, and she's written a book called You Have a Right to Remain Fat. And it's yeah. a very nice kind of um, very positive, very empowering book. Do you think that those um, negative uh, feelings and the, the way you're referring to yourself is because in, in some part, because society tells us that when we don't fit into the same this certain shape or we don't look like X or Y, then we're sort of somehow less than we're not good enough. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, because if I was if I reach a weight that say that I'm bigger than what society deems acceptable, whatever that is, I don't really know anymore. But um, (laughs) (laughs) and I feel fine and I feel like I can do the things I want to do and I'm happy with my life and I'm happy with how my body's moving and my health. no one should be judging that. Like the reason I wanted to change is because I knew I was eating until my stomach hurt. I knew, I knew I was getting palpitations after eating five bars of chocolate. You know, I knew what I was doing was my body wasn't liking it, and it was it was a it was just a horrible feeling. But it would probably make things, you know, I think people are getting more accepting of of different shapes and sizes. And you, you should never judge anyone. You do, first of all, you don't know why they are the shape and the size they are. Secondly, they might be perfectly happy. And there's plenty of people who, who are bigger sizes who work out and they're perfectly able to do what they want. But for me, um, I just noticed things that were, were happening with my health and I, I wanted to change it. So it was the combination of the breathlessness and the palpitations and the, the the issues that were happening with your health and then also the psychological thing that the the meanness towards yourself the, the way that you were had been talking to yourself that you hadn't even realized how much kind of negativity and hate for yourself you'd been spewing yeah. out yeah. and it had become kind of very natural it was not even something you were aware of so those two things kind of came together and was it right you woke up one day and it was like right this is what I'm going to do or was it kind of a gradual um no I I made that promise to myself I was doing I was very much like I trained myself into this all or nothing mentality so when I was writing things down it was very therapeutic for me actually because once I had it written down it kind of left my mind for a while and I got on with whatever else I was doing um so I I made a conscious decision there would be no start date as such like I know I did start in September because I was writing it down then last September but um 
I had no Monday because I was always starting on a Monday <laughs> or the new year or the start of the month yeah. or no, I'll start a Friday. I'll go the opposite way and I'll get the weekend in and do it. Um, so I made a promise to myself I would never have a start date ever again. And I gradually eased myself into it. And that was really hard because I'm not patient with myself at all. I'll be patient with other people, I think. But um, with myself, no, I'm, I'm not. So that's been the hardest thing for me to do is just, you know, calm down, do small little changes and see how they go over the weeks. So what were the first changes and what, what did they develop into? My biggest thing that upset me more than anything was when I looked at the journal, I could see that I ate small breakfasts pretty much at nothing during the day at work or wherever I was. And then at night, I ate thousands of calories. So I knew that had to change. Um, so the first thing I did was eating bigger breakfasts, making sure I ate something in the middle of the day so I wasn't going home, like, starving. And then I cut out the foods that made me binge. There were certain types of so I didn't cut out any food categories. There was the other rule I made for myself. I'm never cutting out, uh, like I'm never cutting out starchy carbs or I'm never cutting out bread entirely, you know, because that's what led me down the path of putting on weight in the first place. But I did make the rule at the time, there are certain, certain bars of chocolate that just made me want to eat more. So say like I switched from the chocolate I was eating to protein bars. And I did try and binge on them once, but it didn't work. <laughs> And I switched to dark chocolate. I hated that at the time. No, I it's love it. And was this stuff that these kind of this all sounds very sensible and you know, I know it sounds no, it's boring great, but and it's sensible. kind of nice the way what you seem to be doing is listening to yourself and understanding yourself and and maybe the the bits that you know weren't that were causing that self sort of I don't want to say abuse quite, but I think there is there well, you were oh, abusing yourself. Abuse, yeah. And so you're instead of going off looking at a diet, oh this diet's gonna fix me or that diet's gonna fix me, you kinda of really reflected and tuned into yourself and changed things from that rather yeah. than what other people were saying you should do or the internet was saying or this latest diet was saying. Exactly. I felt I felt like I become very disassociated with my own body. They I knew I'd five stone that I needed to lose you know, I I didn't want to really think about how much because that overwhelmed me every time I thought, mm. God, it's five stone, I'm never going to get there. Um, but I knew, I knew that with the amount I was overweight, I didn't need to go on a strict diet plan. That I, if I just started tracking the calories and reduce them down six hundred a day, even cutting out the binging, like that, got rid of so much. But I still had quite big dinners at the time because. I want, and I yet I still eat other types of chocolate, but not the type of chocolate that would make me want to just keep eating and eating, you know, until I couldn't fit it in anymore. And what about exercise? Had you been doing much before that? I I did kind of spurts of exercise, so I would get very motivated, go for a week, be sore, feeling great pity for myself, um, and then I'd do nothing again for a couple of months. Um, I've always liked walking and I've always liked doing hiking, but it was getting harder. I did find every time I went back that I wasn't able to do things that I could do a few months earlier. And that was kind of wearing on me mentally as well. I knew I knew, you know, it was getting harder every time I went back. So it took longer before I went back. So I kept it simple when I started. I just said I'm going to hit 10,000 steps every day and 
sometimes that was easy and sometimes it was hard depending you know the hours you're working but so it sounds like you started off very realistically without some huge ridiculous goal that was going to make you feel overwhelmed yeah. and and how did it evolve then so you you have now lost three stone well i didn't really tell anyone actually I'm just trying to think. No, I didn't tell anyone what I was doing because I wasn't doing anything drastic. So I didn't want someone asking me, how is it going? Have you lost a few pounds? Um, and I remember um, nothing, no weight really came off the first two weeks. It seemed like my body was in shock that I was <laughs> not stuffing it with food before going to bed every night. And then the third week, um, I had three pounds. And the next week, one. And I think I was six weeks it was 11 pounds and uh, I was like, oh, I would celebrate this. And then I remember I reached, I reached a, a stone, I think a week later, and uh, I was waiting for people to compliment me and tell me, oh, you, you look great, you lost a stone and no one noticed. So I was like, God almighty. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, did, I didn't even notice it. Like my clothes were slightly better, but, you know. So it, it was it was hard, but the exercise I started doing you know, more walking and I started doing weights as well, only once a week. And I still still stopped and started with that, to be honest. But being able to get better at those things motivated me to keep going. And, and I really had to kind of force myself to be patient. It, it wasn't easy because you have events on as well. You know, you have weddings and you're going out and the weight jumps up again. Um, but it was training myself not to overreact every time my weight jumped up and to calm down that'll come down in a few days again of its own accord you know if I just kept going Okay so three stone later uh, um, of of five stone that you want to get rid of and it's interesting because you know if you go back to when you were in your early 20s you know um, you were not happy with yourself being size 12 and you wanted to get down to this size 8 and that was the beginning of this kind of yo-yo dieting um, thing but now you're not size 12 but I presume with all this work that you've done and sort of the changing of the your attitude towards yourself and towards your food and towards your the way you're thinking about yourself that that you're happy happier now with how you are in a way if if you look what I'm trying to say is at that time you would have been maybe a lower weight but you're yeah. actually doing a better thing now than you were before. Yeah, I find looking back when I was going through it I I didn't it's hard to process everything that's happening because your mind, you know, your body still. I felt out of zinc with it, um, but it. I, I felt weird this this month last year. I was the biggest weight I'd ever been, and somehow, I became more appreciative of my body, and I realized, you know, I had been punishing it in a way and abusing it, and it was still working. It was still doing all the things it was supposed to do. You know, I avoided any full length photos. Everything had to be an angle from up high to the side. <laughs> and all of a sudden I, that that, a I said, Very good. <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden I said, right, just take, take the photo, take it. You know, I just it's weird that it took for me to get to my heaviest to to just stop being as cruel to myself as I was, you know, to just um, just be accept my body more. And I don't know if that's society or if, if it's just me that I'm harsh on myself or, or not. But um, I do. I was thinking about it, that it's very weird that I had to put on all this weight to be so much happier and appreciative of what my body does and how it looks. Mm. And I know I know, understand every you know, I'm never going to look like certain people and certain people are never going to look like me. We're different heights, we're different, you know, structures. 
that's that's kind of hard because when you admire someone, you you know you want to look like that. But at the same time, yeah, it's strange. The the putting on weight has has made me more accepting. Mm, that's interesting. So you're continuing on this um, path. I am. Uh, what have you learned, and what are what have you realised that you actually enjoy that you mightn't have before? And in, in terms of sort of what you're eating and also how you're exercising, what are the things that you're kind of loving about this um, journey? I realise I hate cooking. I admit <laughs> that I I still hate cooking, um, but I've realised before um, I almost used to dread eating because I ate so fast and. I wasn't eating particularly foods that I could taste properly. My taste buds were, were strange. So now going out for a meal and things like that, I, it's much more enjoyable. I'm not worried about what scales is going to say the next day because I know it's it's a temporary thing. Even if it does go up, it'll come down again in a few days. If you keep living your life as normal, it's not the end of the world. Um, so so food-wise, it's just... Um, I'm not as not to say I'm scared of food, but I'm not. I'm more comfortable now with trying out different foods. Even the last few weeks, those foods that I initially banned in the start that I used to cause me to eat binge eat, um, I had them and they tasted completely different. I know if I probably kept eating them, I get the same taste back again. But I, I just thought I don't want to be scared of any type of food. I want to go and eat it and just move on from it then. Um, but it's nice. It's like I felt trapped at the time. So there's a great sense of freedom that I have more control over. I, I can calculate now what I eat and I can feel confident that if I do this, this and this, my weight will stay the same or I lose. You know, I feel much more confident about that before. Whereas before I felt almost out of control that I just didn't know when to stop or I couldn't stop. Mm. Um, you mentioned that I know it was difficult for you writing the piece and difficult yeah. for you even to read it back because it has been quite widely read and I think people have really responded, you know, well to it because because everyone can relate in some way, especially women, I think, which is why we wanted you to have it on. Do you feel a little bit vulnerable having put it out there in that way? Is it something that you kind of, you know, now I have to live up to what people think? People, I've now identified that I have an issue with myself that I needed to sort out and... I'm just thinking about the pressure on you or do you feel okay? No, I feel so much better actually. <laughs> Good. Before it was uh, published. Um when I when I was writing it first, I wrote a, a much more what's I call it, a glossy version. I kind of skimmed over a lot of things and just that, oh, I decided to lose weight and here I am. Um which wasn't the truth. I wanted to explain that I I ended up there without trying too much. You know, it's quite easy to end up because there, there was a stage where I could actually overeat quite a lot and my body kind of coped with it. And then the last year, it wasn't coping with it. It just, you know, I, I wouldn't even eat that much and it was piling on weight. Um, but so when I wrote that version, I wasn't happy with it. But it was quite nerve wracking, to be completely honest, because I wasn't sure um, would anyone relate to it or, you know, was I being too honest, sharing everything? Would it come back to to haunt me um, and I was it was actually easy enough to write because it was exactly how I felt but uh, knowing when it was going to be published and then having the, the before photo and even the after photo I was a bit worried about um, it's just I, I wasn't sure how people would react if I was the only person that felt this way or if anyone would really relate to it but I'm glad I did it and it's been the amount of messages I've got about it, I 
didn't expect it's been it's been it's been really a sense of relief and freedom kind of just getting it out there well you know now you know something that was bothering me for so long and it's out there now so what about your family and friends what are they saying um yeah some my mum is delighted. <laughs> um, she knew, you know, she knew. I used to try and explain to her because she, she would sometimes say, well, boy, you know, why don't you just stop? Um, and I was like, I don't know. I logically know what I should be doing, but I wasn't doing it. Uh, no, she's delighted. Um, some people have said they didn't, didn't realise I was, they said it made them quite sad to read it, that they didn't realise I was unhappy about it. Um so, and other people have said uh, they found it quite positive, which which was good. I personally found it hard to reread because it brought me back to, you know, all those feelings again. And it just, you know, it was tough to reread it again. Even when I was writing it, I found I got really irritable and a bit cranky when I was writing it because I was back in that space again in that kind of mindset. And it just wasn't nice being there. Well, I have to say, because we're colleagues and I work with you and I see you around, I've always, as long as I've known you, I don't know, it's a few years now, always looked at you and thought you were such an attractive woman, really lovely. And for me, people's personality is what I think about. And I do think that that book that we'll be talking to that author about, you've the right to remain fat. I think there's also a part of it, which is you've really eloquently said if you're not happy and like you weren't and you needed Mm -hmm. to do something that was grand, but it should never be about what other people expect you to be. And yeah, like when I looked at you all the time, I just thought you're so glamorous. You're so, you've got such an aura about you that, you know, that's still there. It doesn't matter what size you are. It would always be there kind of thing. So, yeah. And I wasn't, I know I said I I was ashamed and unhappy, but I wasn't, I did, I was able to compartmentalize and live my life and be happy in many other aspects. And, um, and thank you so much for what you you said. Um, But it's, you know, it, it was something that when I was the weight I am now, when I was putting on weight, I was deeply unhappy. So it, I knew in my heart it was about my mindset and whatever for whatever reason, I got this mindset that I I was pun- almost punishing my body. That's that's what I wanted to change. And that's what feels really good to feel. I'm not changed completely. I still have to work in it, but feels a whole lot better than what it was this time last year. And I think whatever about stone and whatever about the scales, the fact that you're now saying you're not punishing yourself and you don't have that attitude towards yourself, that's the success that I think about. That's the biggest one. Yeah, I think the thing that kept my weight going up more and more um, all the time was I'd always feel like the overeating was almost a punishment and I needed to do extra good the next day. So it was always this kind of going extreme each day extreme in the morning extreme good and then extreme bad you know extreme bad food so it's it's really nice to just feel more relaxed around food and exercise and it's really nice being able to um like the last few months my about what I'm writing about next week is my weight plateaued but it was really nice <laughs> it's not nice having a plateau but what was nice was um I was more willing to try you know exercise more and just getting more in tune with with how my body reacts to food because I didn't know I I basically you know I ate what I thought what I regarded as you know kind of bold or bad food and didn't really listen at all to how my body was reacting so it's nice kind of becoming more in sync with it now. Brilliant well I know you're going to continue writing and uh, telling people how you're getting on 
Um, and I think it's it's really different because of the fact you're not talking about a certain diet or you're not following fad things and you seem to have really listened to your body and done what's right for you. And there's no sense that you're judging anyone else for what they should be doing either. It's a very just personal thing, like I think these things are. So yeah. I look forward to seeing where it goes. And thanks very much because I do think it's very hard to talk about these things sometimes. It is, but it's also... Um I didn't really speak about it, actually. It's really strange that I've gone from not speaking to it to putting it in a national <laughs> newspaper. <laughs> it's quite extreme. But I feel lighter after doing it. It just feels, um, you know, especially with everyone saying they could relate to it. It's, oh my God, I wasn't the only one thinking. When you're in it, you feel, I felt that I was the only person that thought this way. I was the only person having these great plans every day and failing every night. Um, so it's really good to hear other people, you know, would, are doing similar things. So yeah. it's, it feels good. Great. Well, Rachel, thank you very much. And we'll talk to you again. Thank you. That was Rachel Flaherty talking to Roisin Engel. This week, Smashing Times Theatre Company, who have featured on this podcast before, launched the Smashing Times International Centre for the Arts and Human Rights and a new website which features a new documentary and a book, both under the title Women in an Equal Europe. Women such as Senator Lynn Rouen, Sinead Burke and Alwyn Fuera were interviewed for the project. I spoke to Vanessa Ogida, who is a Nigerian-born broadcast journalist, motivational speaker and writer, and to Mary Moynihan of Smashing Times. Vanessa had some important and moving things to say about being a woman who was new to Ireland, and Mary told me all about the Women in an Equal Europe project. Here they are. Mary, tell us about this project and about Smashing Times. Okay. Well, Smashing Times Theatre and Film Company was set up in 1991 by a group of women artists who were interested in using the arts to promote social change and human rights. And initially, the company would do professional theatre productions and bring those productions out to places like Tala and Ballymun, where we wanted to share the performances, if you like, but then engage with audiences on dis- in discussion around the content of the performances. So, for example, I remember when I was first started in theatre and discovering the work of Frank Arama and Dario Fo, brilliant theatre practitioners who were using their work for social change. And when we would do these performances, we might be doing a performance around rape or domestic violence or a performance around um, corruption in society. But then we'd have these discussions afterwards. The discussions became so long, we created workshops. So then we were doing workshops with communities. Then the company started working in Northern Ireland. We were working up there before the ceasefires, using the arts and storytelling to promote reconciliation and to bring different communities together. And then because of our expertise in that work, we found we were being asked to go and work in Europe and sharing our work with different countries like Serbia and Croatia, where they have experienced war and looking at processes of moving beyond violent conflict and also using the arts for the working with the refugee crisis and and different issues. And over the years, we are continuing to still do professional theatre productions and film work. But we are now in the process of setting up the Smashing Times International Centre for the Arts and Human Rights, which is the first of its kind in Ireland. And as part of that, we've set up a website. And the idea of the website is to be a digital resource for artists and civil activists and the general public looking at how the arts can be used to promote human rights. So we're launching uh, the website and with this we're launching a book called Women in an Equal Europe and a documentary. And it's this, uh, I suppose the book has come out of a project we've been running for the last year, a European project with Ireland, Spain, Croatia and Serbia. And as part of that project, we wanted to look at women's stories today. So maybe I'll step back a little. Before we did that project, we have worked in the past on projects 
subjects using women's stories from 1916, women's stories from World War II. We gather these stories, put them in a book, and then we use the stories as inspiration to create either a theatre performance or uh, create a film. Very often, the content will determine the artistic output. So that's really interesting. So you're bringing artists into a space, looking at these stories and saying, how can these stories inspire artists to create art? And at the same time, raise awareness of these stories. But I remember when we were working on the project to do with women's stories of World War Two, talking about these incredible women who were um, standing up against fascism, ordinary women in extraordinary circumstances. And somebody in the room said, who are the heroes today, the women heroes today? Mm. And there was a number of artists in the, the room. And of course, we all had to think about that for a moment. And we did know women, Katie Taylor, Mary Robinson. And then somebody mentioned Mary Lawler. And a number of the younger women didn't know who Mary Lawler was. And we found this extraordinary. Mary Lawler being this incredible Irish woman who was head of Amnesty in Ireland, went on to set up Frontline Defenders, which is an international organisation standing up for human rights activists who use nonviolent methods. And we said, well, let's tell these stories. So that was our latest project, Women in Equal Europe. And we, each country, identified five women. And the idea is to interview the women and ask them about what's your experience as a woman in Europe? What do you think of gender equality? Have you experienced discrimination? And then questions like, what does happiness mean to you? And what advice would you give your younger self? Very interesting question. Yeah, Mary, just for a bit of historical perspective for people who might be too young to remember, just tell us about Croatia and Serbia and why you've chosen them particularly. You have five women from, from Croatia and five from Serbia and, and, and that interests me a lot because I kind of know that area from having worked there. Just, and that's a very recent uh, conflict and was particularly terrible. Yes, um, we have linked with that theatre in Serbia and a fantastic woman called Diana Milosevic, who's the artistic director. And uh, Diana found us, I think, because of our work in Europe, where Diana is using her art form to work with women who have lived through the war. So obviously the former war, the former Yugoslavia and the wars that that were horrific and the legacy of those wars is still there and the ethnic conflict and the ethnic um, difficulties are still there. So Diana has been using her work as an artist in Serbia and creating work very similar to ours, going in and using theatre and film to bring the different ethnic communities together. So, for example, we were delighted with this Women in Equal Europe project because we were bringing an arts organisation from Croatia together with an arts organisation from Serbia. And those, the, 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 the artists from those communities having conversations, if you like, for the first time about their experience of war and what's happened to them and how they're dealing with young people and how they're moving forward. Because mm-hmm. they're very much still dealing with the legacy of how you deal with the conflict, mm-hmm. how you deal with the fact that the perpetrators of these atrocious crimes that were committed in the former Yugoslavia, where people are still walking around mm-hmm. um, and what yes. happens. And of course, there are similarities to how you deal with conflict with Northern Ireland. Indeed. So having those yeah. conversations is really important. Neighbour against neighbour yes, and yes, village against village. Yeah. Vanessa, um, you played a big role in this. Um, you've been here since 2002. Uh, you've seen Ireland go up and go down. And here you are in the middle of this fantastic project. Have you? What have you brought to it and what have you learned from it? Um... First, I would like to say thank you to Smashing Times for, you know, that giving me that space to represent the African woman's voice. It's, um, it was time to be represented anyway. So, you see, for the African woman here, coming in as migrants has, was never easy. I remember 
trying to settle in and um, how difficult it was for me settling in. Then I used to peep through my, just look, open my blinds in the morning and look out, see the women all going about their normal businesses. But me being an African woman, just alone, not being able to mix and just feeling that nobody wants you around, you know, it was really difficult. So um, I was happy when I was called in. I, I think someone referred me to them, actually, to Smashing Times. And I was so happy because I, I, I thought, yes, it's time to talk about my experiences. Talk about how I felt coming when I first arrived in Ireland. How I had to now join a lot of women's networks just to get myself out there got my kids in um, um, crash and um, some other preschools and all that, just to network. You know, it, it wasn't easy, but I'm glad I, I passed through that phase. And I'm really thankful to Smashing Times for that um, opportunity. Vanessa, what was the biggest challenge for you? Do you mean biggest challenge in, in terms of the movie, in terms of documentary? Yes, because you're, or? Pa- you're painting. No, no, but just let's talk about your own experiences okay. first. In terms of that intense isolation that you obviously felt at the beginning. Ah, it was tough. It was tough. Um, like I said, then I, wo- I lived in Dublin 22. So what I did every morning was I just opened my blind, look, looked out, saw the women, you know, all familiarizing, socializing, even in the mornings. Mm. But there I was, really into myself, nobody to talk to, nobody wanted to even ask, are you okay? Do you want, you know, I, I was coming from a place where all I've known was communal living. That's what we do in Africa. We live very extended family lifestyles. So this was really, really tough for me. And Sometimes I would cry. I remember I I would sit in my room, write so many stories, write poems. You know, I was just writing, writing. and So this is what you wanted to do? Were you, did, did you want to be a writer or did you find this need to express yourself? Alice, I've always been a writer. I, yes. I've, always been a, a, I've always worked in the media. I left my country as a broadcast journalist. So... Um, it has always been my area. I write. I still write up until now. I have a page on Facebook where I talk about a lot of social... Co- I just talk about a lot of stories. And I always would reflect my... I, u- I use me to tell my stories. So everything is in there. And um, I just kept writing, writing poems about Africa, missing home, you know. And it was tough. But I woke up one morning. I said, this isn't you. You are a very courageous person. Get up. Go and look for these people. So I went that morning to um, the crash, and I, um, luckily for me, the lady in the crash, Catherine, was such a beautiful woman in and out. She welcomed me in, introduced me to everyone in the crash, made sure she, you, you know, she got me doing things with them every time. In fact, I was nearly representing parents in that crash. So she got me involved and um, I, I started leaving. Yeah. I started leaving, literally leaving in Ireland because before then it was in my show. Mm. I just looked at people. So, and you know, it was hard because I'm not an introvert. Yes. I'm a very extroverted person. I like to talk, I like to socialize, I like to network, you know. I'm 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 bubbly. That's how I like to describe myself. So you can imagine living mm. a life of 
just you and your children talking every day. And my children were just babies. They couldn't really say anything. So the talk was more like me just saying, don't do this, do that, you know. Mm. There was no proper communication. Yeah, my husband was there. Just us. It was it was too much. It was too much of too much to handle. And how did you and Mary get together then? What happened? Um I I had just finished um an entrepreneurship course with UCD and I met um I had very wonderful classmates. So one of them introduced referenced me to Mary, I think, and um they contacted me that they would like to speak to me um, because I had a very good relationship with my classmates. And I remember I, I, I did our last presentation. I did a presentation on a media talk show and they were all delighted. So I think he told Mary about it. How um, long ago yeah. was this? When, when well, did you meet this Mary? Was, um, I suppose it was a year and a half ago. Yeah, stage. about yeah. two about about two years. Two years ago. Yeah. And at yeah. that point, Mary, had you had you conceived of this project? Were you we, well on the way with it? Or where did you stand at that point? We were started, we had started working on the project. Our, our projects tend to be, you know, we would try and have at least a year for the project. So mm. this project had been, on, had been going on for the last year and a half. And we knew that we were going to look at women's stories of today. And it's really important, if you're looking at human rights, that you have as many voices as possible. Mm. And, and even in the arts, because, you know, the arts are about exploring different voices and different experiences. So so the, the, for us, the documentary and the book, we wanted to have as many pe- people as possible included to talk about the different experiences. And tell us about that, Mary. You found these people, they were, they were um, suggested by these different groups in different countries. What have you found uh, as a result of all those voices coming into your head and going into the book, going into the documentary? What is your general impression? Oh, it's amazing. It's like we live, I sometimes think, in what I would call a society dominated by a male narrative. And sometimes we're totally, it's, you know, this unconscious bias. We're not even aware of it. You know, we've had uh, uh, male narratives in history. Um, and we just have to open up and listen to the different stories. Like we've seen Waking the Feminists, where, this, where, where, where we hear so many experiences of discrimination. We've got to have alternative voices to start telling alternative stories, which will bring about change in society. It's really important. And when I go in and look at all these, even when I was working on the stories of women from World War II and then the stories of women today, there's no unique, the women are unique they are all so different, which is extraordinary. And then you have this debate about are these extraordinary women in ordinary circumstances? Are they ordinary yes. women living? They're all ordinary women doing extraordinary things. And everyone has a story to tell. That's really important. Give me a few instances. Of, of stories to tell? Yes. OK, let me think. Um, the stories from the women of World War Two. I always talk about Mary Elms and she's like an Irish Oscar Schindler. And I would love to see her put as a role model in our schools today. She's this extraordinary woman who saved hundreds of people from the Nazi death camps. And uh, just uh, the relevance of her story today for young people in terms of the, the refugee crisis that's happening. So her story is really important. All of the women that are interviewed in the documentary. So you have Vanessa's story, which is extraordinary. Just to listen to Vanessa's experiences, like that image of being behind, mm-hmm. looking out the, the blinds and, look, and not living your life. That's an extraordinary, moving, emotional. And not feeling wanted. Yeah. Feeling so isolated. It's a very powerful image. Yeah. 
and, and just to hear all the women, because the, the other women that we have, for example, we have Alwyn Freire, who's interviewed in the book. And Alwyn is such a fantastic artist and is known internationally as an artist. But then to hear her voice and her vision mm. about society. And it's just extraordinary to hear her talking about how, she, you know, Alwyn talks a lot about finding the uniqueness of yourself and doing your, your doing what you need to do in life. And just getting that message out to young people to be yourself and to follow your dream. And what does that take? And a lot of the women, for me, women have to work really hard. We struggle. We struggle a lot with, but we just get on with it. Because that's another thing I found was common with all the women, that the women find a way to make things work. You have to. Vanessa was talking earlier about having your vision and creating that vision and then having your plan and and just trying to make it happen. And if you succeed, if you don't succeed, as long as you try, Mm. you know, that's really important. So what you were looking for in, in, in this project, Mary, were, were they are heroes uh, in one sense. Uh, so when you set out to look, I mean, I would, the idea of you going back to World War Two fascinates me. Um, and does it come forward from that? So you have so you have World War Two and then are you setting them in situations which are particularly difficult or what what do what do the other women represent? They also represent the conflict in the the, the Yugoslavian conflict. What else is going on in there with those these the, women? the women today and the women yes. in Equal Europe book? Yes. Okay. So well, I suppose the women that we have, for example, we we try to have a diverse range. We initially said we would look at women using the arts and human rights, but we found then we had to open it out. So we have Alwyn Freire. We would have and Alwyn's interviewed in the book and in the documentary. Diana is interviewed in the documentary, so she's from Serbia and she talks about her experiences of working with the women who've experienced mm. conflict and how she's using her art form, and then finding connections with us. Uh, we have women like Sinead Burke. So Sinead is a writer, an academic and a fashionista, a, an influencer, yes. as she's called, a powerhouse. Now it's a column on Vogue. Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but to listen to Sinead talk about, she says nothing with, about us without us. So the idea of opening up for women with disabilities and hearing those experiences. And um, we have Dil Rick Masinga, a journalist broadcaster. And, you know, and Dil's story is f- incredible. Dil arrived in Ireland with no qualifications, as she says herself, very little. And just through hard work and determination and her vision, working her way up to become this successful woman. And uh, Mary Lawler, who I've talked about, and we've just a range of women. For example, we have Ivana Novakovic, Professor of Human Genetics in the University of Belgrade in Serbia. So there's a broad range of women. It's really interesting just to hear the different stories of women. And Vanessa, when you are working on this and now that you've come through it and it's about to be launched, actually, um, have you learned that your experience was not all that common or was very common? Uh, it was very common. I, I mean, talking to a lot of African women, it is... And was it was and it is still common. You know, it's all about listening to a single line of the story. So like Chima Amanda would say, the, the writer, African writer, she talked about that a danger of listening to a single line of the story. That was what our experiences have been here. Just knowing that this is what Africans represent as against this is what they truly are. So it's difficult trying to come in and I mean a lot of us have integrated so well I'm so happy I've integrated well I have a lot of lovely friends um, amongst my NUJ members which is really fantastic for me and I have I mean other networks you know that I've worked with so it's it's not that me of that time because I had to say to myself I'm a motivational speaker by the way so I had to say to myself listen this isn't you go out there be you be the courageous person you are 
So I went out and I started talking to people. That single line of a story had to be broken. That danger of it. People had to look beyond that and see that they, this is a woman that has so much to offer as against the, the negative stories that were projected in the media. Do you understand? This, uh, this is what you have. This is not what it is. This is what it actually is. Because African women have a lot to, to give. And I am so thankful to, to, to the Smashing Times, like I would always say. I think, ordinarily, they may not have gotten an, an African woman to speak. But I thank God that, that my friend, um, I don't remember his name, <laughs> called, um, you know, ref, told them about me. And I'm happy that I represented the African woman's voice. Vanessa, I can see why you're a motivational speaker. Mm-hmm. I, I, I urge everybody to take on Vanessa as, emotional, as, as, a, as a motivational speaker. Mary, this is all happening. This is all uh, going online in the next, during August. Yes, um, the, 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 this website is being set up um, and it's a new website funded by the Department of Culture, Gwiltacht and Heritage of the Gwiltacht. Yes. And www.smashingtimes.ie so you can go on and then see a lot of the information to do with the arts and human rights on the new website. We're having a launch of the website and the book and the documentary in the Mansion House on August the 15th at 6pm. Uh, our guest speakers are Sabina Coyne-Higgins and Orla O'Connor from the National Women's Council and Vanessa. So everybody is welcome. And we see the evening as a celebration because it's really important to celebrate yes. these stories and to celebrate the achievements of women and to share them. And, and I always say that these, you know, our audiences are men and women, all people. We want everybody to engage with this work and share in this work because it is just so fascinating and interesting. And also celebrating smashing times now going for how long? We were set up in 1991. Yeah, so it's That fantastic. is fantastic work. Mary Moynihan, Vanessa Ogida, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, for thank you very much. That was Vanessa Ogida and Mary Moynihan. And to find out more, you can visit the new website on their International Centre for the Arts and Human Rights at smashingtimes.ie. That's all we have time for. Thanks to all our guests, Rachel Flaherty, Vanessa Ogida and Mary Moynihan. Check out smashingtimes.ie for details of their new centre for the arts and human rights. And if you want to read Rachel's excellent article, which we urge you to do, and follow her progress, you can visit irishtimes.com. Remember, you can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts and on irishtimes.com. The podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan and I'll talk to you next time. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food, and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.